We'll turn back to uh, 1 Samuel 27. That's our chapter for tonight. And I want to ask you, uh, who are your heroes of the faith? So who are the men and the women in your life who have inspired you as a Christian? Who are the people who have encouraged you and have shone Christ into their lives? Who are the people that God has placed into your life to encourage you as a Christian? I hear some of my heroes of faith. My hero of preaching is a man called Charles Simeon. He lived in the 1700s. He, he preached week in, week out, in spite of fierce opposition for 52 years in the same church. Absolute hero. Uh, John Stott is my hero of singleness in ministry and longevity in ministry. Single to the day he died at the same church for 50 years. Uh, Billy Graham is my hero of evangelism. Uh, his simplicity, his clarity, his spirit-led convictions as he preached the gospel. Uh, David Fletcher is my hero of pastoral care. He's the man who taught me to care and to love. And David Gibb is my hero of discipleship. He's the man who read the Bible with me and prayed with me when I first became a Christian. So who are your heroes of faith? I remember as an early Christian, I kind of worshipped these people. I, I put them on a pedestal. I wanted to preach like them and pastor like them and evangelize like them. I wanted to be them. And I'm so, 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 so deeply thankful to God for these people. But one day the bubble burst. One day one of these people fell spectacularly. And there was so much pain and so much heartache. But God taught me a lifelong lesson. That these people were good people and gospel people, but they were just people. They were used by God, but they were not God. They were human beings. They were flawed, and they were failures, and they were sinful, just like you and just like me. And God told me, do not idolize any human being. The only person that we should worship is God himself. And I'm so thankful for that lesson because for the past 30 years as a Christian, so many leaders who I have respected have fallen. I think of Roy Clements 30 years ago, Rabbi Zacharias, Jonathan Fletcher, Bill Hybels, Joshua Harris, all, all these people who I had great respect for, and God was saying, they're not God. They're just flawed human beings. And I want to say, church, please don't idolize anybody except the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you realize that, you read the Bible quite differently. So your Old Testament heroes like Elijah and Moses and Joshua, they were great people used mightily by God, but they were just human beings. Or in the Gospels, I love how real the Bible is, the disciples are not shiny, happy people. They're flawed failures. So Paul said in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's not a single person who is perfect in all their ways. Someone said that the best of people are people at best. 
The best person you know, the most godly, the most upright, the most faithful person is still just a person. So don't idolise them. So in the life of David, and David is this kind of superstar, he's an incredibly impressive man, and it's easy to idolise him. In chapter 16, he, the law was on David, the spirit came upon David, and God used David mightily. He used David to defeat Goliath. He used David to show kindness to so many people. He used David to show his mercy to Saul again and again and again. And David himself says in chapter 26, verse 23, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. And surely David is righteous and David is faithful. David is upright and David is good. And as soon as you start to think that, I want to say, please do not put David on a pedestal. The best of people are people at best. He is a good man, but he's still just a man. And in chapter 27, it is an extraordinary chapter because it is a godless chapter. In this whole chapter, God is not mentioned. It doesn't mention God at all. What God has done or what God is doing or what God will do, because we're supposed to see in this chapter what it is like in life when you are not walking closely with the Lord. I called this sermon, The Dark Days of David. The Dark Days of David. Because no Psalms were written during this time. Nothing good happened to David during this time. There was no fruit coming from David's life during this time because David is not walking closely with the Lord. Is that hard for you to hear? That God's chosen king, God's anointed king, is not walking closely with his God. He's still chosen, he's still anointed with the spirit of God, but he is drifting and wandering and struggling spiritually. Have you ever been there? I know you have. There's two issues with David. He doubts. He doubts God's protection. 27 verse 1. But David thought to himself... One of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Isn't that extraordinary? David thought the hand of Saul would be stronger than the hand of God. In his mind, the hand of Saul would eventually destroy him. That word destroy means to perish or to sweep away. You want to say, what the heck? Didn't David believe God? God has said time and time and time again, I will protect you. I will be with you. 23 verse 14, day after day Saul searched for David, but God did not give David his hands. Didn't he believe God's promises of protection through Abigail and through Jonathan? Just read chapters 18 to 26. He'd experienced God's protection again and again and again in miraculous and powerful and impossible ways. So David knows God will protect him. David has seen God protecting him, and yet in this moment he is doubting and questioning. It's like God's protection is like luck that's about to run out. It's almost like he looks at the situation in front of him, and he is so consumed with fear, he has forgotten that God has protected him in the past and will protect him again. I know that I can do that. I'm really good at quoting verses on protection. I can quote Psalm 46, God is my strength and refuge of ever-present help in trouble. I love that verse. 
I can quote Isaiah 41. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I can quote that verse. And I can look back on my life and see all the many and manifold ways that God has protected me in the past. The, the person he put in my life at the right time, the way he removed me from the room at exactly the right time, I can see that. I know what I'd appear. But there's moments of fear. It's like all you can see is the potential disasters and you're blind to God's hand over it and under you and before you and behind you. Do you ever do that? I know you, you do. So David doubts God's protection. He doubts God's presence. Look again at verse 1. It's extraordinary. But one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Look at this verse. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. The best thing I can do is to walk away from God's land. The best thing is to walk away from God's people and all the blessings that come from God being in the land. The best thing I can do is to walk away from God and his goodness and I'm going to run away to the land of the Philistines. I will flee from God's people, flee from God's presence and go and live with the enemies. Really? Is that the best thing you can do? He doesn't just live with the Philistines, he assimilates, he conforms, he becomes like them. Verse 2, David and his 600 men with him left and went over. The word there is crossed over. They crossed over to the enemy territory. They went over to Achish, king of Gath. Gath was the city where the mighty Goliath came from. He goes and lives with the enemy in verse 3, David's men settled there. The word there means that they set up roots. They, they conformed there. They assimilated there. They made it their home. And in verse 5, David says to Achish, if I found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns. Let me build a house. Let's just settle here and let's just make this our home. And so we're told in verse 7, David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. And for 16 months of his life, David fled from the presence of his God. It reminds me of Jonah, you know, desperately seeking to flee from God's presence on that boat to Tarshish. I want to say, church, when you start to doubt God's presence and God's protection, when you start to question, it's like Satan has got a boat ready and waiting for you to step into to take you away from God. He loves it. He loves it when you doubt and question. He loves it when you want to assimilate with the world. And the question I've been asking this week is why? Why is David now doubting? Why is David not walking closely with the Lord? Why? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell you. But if you've read 1 Samuel so far, there are a few clues. It could be exhaustion. He could be spiritually and emotionally exhausted because he's had nine chapters of relentless pursuit, years and years and years of opposition and hatred and malice and hurts and heartaches, and this is the straw that breaks the camel back. Could be that. Could be human logic. You know, Gath in David's mind made sense. It was a safe place to run to for him and his family. He'd done the research. The economy was good. The lifestyle was good. It was far away enough from his opposition, and it worked. Look at verse 4. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So it did work. Humanly speaking, it solved the problem. He used his logic. He walked away from God, and life was good. 
Could be that. It could be spiritual attack. I hope that you know that normally when you've had this mountaintop experience of God, you often have a valley of despair. You go from the heights to the depths. Just read church history. Or look at David. He goes from the experiencing God's presence and God's protection to, I'm going to die. Look at Elijah in 1 Kings. He's on the mountaintop calling down far from heaven. And the next moment, the next chapter, he's in a cave saying, I want to die. Look at Moses up the mountain receiving the, 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 the tablets one day. The next day, down the mountain with the golden calf smashing the tablets. It's often the way. Mountain top high, a valley of despair. We don't know why David doubted, but we do know this. I do know this. That we're all prone to doubt, aren't we? We're all prone to it. He doubted, he deceived. What did 1 Samuel 26, 23 say? The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. Where David is anything but righteous and anything but faithful. In verses 8 to 12, he attacks, he plunders, he kills, he lies. Verse 8, now David and his men went up and raided. They fought against the the Gezurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. They are the enemies of the Philistines. So he's attacking the enemies of the Philistines. Verse 9, whenever David attacked an area, he didn't leave a man or woman alive. He took sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, and clothes and returned them to Achish. So he brings all the plunder, all the booty, all the livestock, the goods to Achish. And then he tells this massive, huge, big, fat, whopping lie. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? Who were you fighting against today? David would say, oh, against the Negev of Judah, against my people, against the Israelites. I I, I attacked my own people because I'm like a Philistine now. I'm on your team, Achish. And that is a massive, big, fat, whopping lie. That's why he needs to say in verse 11, he, he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David really did. So to cover up the lie, he had to kill. And he killed every man and every woman so no one could unveil the truth. He's just ruthless. In verse 11, such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. I said before, I grew up in a family of liars. I was taught to to lie from a very early age, this web of lies. And the problem with lying, you have to cover up your lies with more lies and more lies and more lies, and someone always gets hurt. Verse 12, Achish trusted David. He believed in a deceiver. And he said to himself, he's become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. No, he won't, because he's a deceiving liar. In chapter 28 and 29, he joins the Philistine army, and it's a cracking read, but basically David is willing to go up to fight against his own people. But the leaders of the Philistines refuse to let David go because he is the Hebrew. He's the one who's slain tens of thousands. But three times in chapter 29, Achish says to David, David, you are such a good man. David, you're an amazing man. You're a good man. And you want to scream, no, you are not, David. You want to scream, open your eyes, Achish. This man is a deceiver, a liar, a murderer, a thief, an adulterer. You ever had the experience where someone is saying that someone else is a good person? You want to scream, no, they're not. 
Well, God knows. So this is an extraordinary chapter because it's godless. We're supposed to see what life is like when you're not walking closely with God. And you're supposed to see that, that, that no one is perfect. David is chosen, he's loved, he's gifted, but he's just a man with a nature like yours and mine. So don't idolise him. My favourite disciple in the whole Bible is Peter. Because he does brilliant things, but he's a broken man. He says extraordinary things and then just stupid things. And I find this chapter strangely encouraging. Because deep down in my heart, I know that I am not righteous. I'm not always faithful. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That word all in the Hebrew means all. All of us here are failures. We're all capable of doing Things which are not pleasing to God. We're all capable of giving way to fear. We're all capable of taking life to our own hands. Doesn't make it right. Don't excuse it. But we're not perfect. I want to say tonight, friends, that you've got to realize this danger of not walking closely with God. It's a slippery slope when you start to say, I don't need God and I'm doubting God. Before you know it, you're just in this pit of despair. And it's also liberating because we're not called to idolise people. Don't fix your eyes on any one person, a family member, a pastor, a friend, a spouse, and make them godlike. Even the best of people are people at best. Don't lionise anybody except the Lion of Judah. So the dark days of David, but the good hand of God. The good hand of God, because... God might not be mentioned explicitly in this chapter, but his fingerprints are all over it. He's not mentioned by name, but his hand is all over this chapter. It says those who leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hand in everything. So you're supposed to read this chapter and see God's hand in everything. His hand of protection. So verse 7 tells us he lived in Philistine for 16 months. So God protected David from being killed by his enemies for 16 months. That was the hand of God. The Gath wasn't that far away, so, so Saul could easily have come down to pursue him, but he chose not to. That was the hand of God. In chapter 29, God protected David from having blood on his hands. He, he, he stopped him from fighting against his own people. So God's protection is not derailed by David's doubts. And praise God for that, eh? Do you believe that your God will always protect you? He calls himself like a mother hen. God is your mother hen who, who, who puts you under his wings like chicks. This beautiful picture of God saying, you are safe in my arms. I'm like a strong tower that you run into. We still learn to talk to ourselves. In 27 verse 1, David literally, it says, David talked to himself. The problem with David talking to himself is he, he talked to himself lies about God. And I think again, we're good at that. In those difficult moments, you, you talk to yourself, but you're talking to yourself stuff that's not true. Learn to talk things which are true. Learn to have the words of Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. <coughs> Or Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, he is my fortress, he is my God in whom I trust. Do you see God's hand of protection over every, every, every life? See the hand of God's quiet presence. 
in chapter 27, God's presence is so clear, but in quiet ways. Sparing David, supporting David, saving David. Now, God doesn't always blast his presence from a loudspeaker. God doesn't shout at you, I am with you, I haven't left you. He often lets you discover in those small, meaningful, quiet ways his presence with you. I love to journal. End of every day, I just write down ways I've seen God's presence in my life during that day. A text that someone sent me. The person who prayed for me. A peace that was inexplicable. A still, small voice of calm. Life is not plain sailing. But God doesn't leave you. I love the, the poem, Footprints. It's super cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that many times along the path of life, especially at my very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, that you would walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there's only been one set of footprints. I don't understand why. Why, when I needed you most, would you leave me? He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever during the trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. So see the hand of God's protection, his presence. See the hand of God's strange wisdom. God's ways are not your ways. God's plans are not your plans. Why are these crazy things happening in chapter 27? The answer, we don't know. We don't know why God allowed David to flee to the Philistines. We don't know why God allowed David to lie and deceive. We don't know why God used a pagan king to save David from having blood on his hands. We don't know. But we do know that God often uses the most bizarre and inexplicable situations to carry out his good purpose. Even if you can't see it right now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So see God's wisdom, his protection, his presence, but lastly his mercy, his extravagant mercy. I must admit to feeling a bit duped this week because I love David. David is one of my heroes of the Bible. You know, I think about David defeating Goliath and I think about David showing mercy to Saul and I came to this chapter I thought, oh, no, no, no. He's a calculating, ruthless, doubting, deceiving, adultering, murdering fool. And I kind of got angry. But why was I shocked? Because no one's righteous, not even one. So instead of focusing on, on the folly of David, let's focus on the mercy of God. Because God was incredibly merciful to David. God could have wiped his hands with David. God could have said, I've chosen you, David. I have cared for you, David. I have carried you, David. And you've stuffed up again and again and again and again. How dare you? Away from me, David. God could have done that. But that is not the character of our God, is it? 
Our God is rich in mercy, full of mercy. Remember the mother who came to Napoleon asking for mercy for her son because her son had done two things wrong that deserved death. And Napoleon says, justice demands death. He said, I don't ask for justice, I I plead for mercy. And Napoleon said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And the mother said this, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is what I ask for. So we don't want justice, do we? Because just like Davis, you are flawed, you're a failure, and so am I. We deceive and we doubt and we question and we do stupid things. Please don't ask for justice, ask for mercy. And the Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son, he was the one who was truly righteous, truly perfect, truly faithful. He, he trusted his heavenly father in the darkest of days. No lies, no de- deceit, no doubt. And Achish said of David, three times he's innocent. Remember Pontius Pilate? Three times he said, the Lord Jesus Christ is innocent, and he truly was. And yet Jesus went to that cross for you, to pour out his mercy. Master Cardiff said, our Saviour kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of your life. Your doubt, your deceit, your lies, your adultery. But rather than recalling horror, he reaches out in kindness And so I can clean that if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palm full of mercy and washes away your sin. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. So people will fail you, but Jesus never will. Don't idolize people. There's only one hero in your life, and his name is Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Father, forgive us for our doubts and forgive us for our deception and forgive us for our lies. Forgive us for all our flaws. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are faithful. And thank you that you never leave us even when we try to flee from you. In Jesus' name.